Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you an opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, to make sure you're ready to focus on the word of God and to uh, let the Holy Spirit teach you through the teaching of the word this evening. Then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be challenged by your word this evening, for the things that you have in your word to teach us, to reveal to us, to help us to understand the panorama of your plan and all of the many things that you have provided for us and the destiny that you have prepared for us. Father, we pray that as we study these things this evening, you'll give us a greater uh, understanding of the things we've studied, the things we're going to study, and that we might be encouraged and strengthened just by the refreshing waters of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It is 2007. I know you already knew that. But we started our study in Hebrews in 2005, which means we've been going through Hebrews for two years, and we've managed to work our way through six chapters. And we're going pretty fast. And we finished last time with the uh, third major section in the book. Actually, is that right? Put our Make sure I understand this right. I think so. We finished the third major section last time. We get ready to start the, or the fourth major section. We start the fifth major section tonight. So that means it's time for review and overview. So this is the time when you get to just buckle your seatbelts because we're going to fly through Hebrews again. I want to take some time to go back to remind us of where we've been so that we can understand where this next section fits within the flow of, of uh, Hebrews, because this next section is really the center of what the writer of Hebrews is uh, talking about. It's the largest section. We start in chapter 7, and the teaching sec- section, the explanation, the didactic section of this portion is from 7-1 down through 10-19, or 10-18, actually, and then 10-19 uh, begins a warning or exhortation and then warning section. And then we have a, that is followed by another exhortation and warning section. So let's just kind of review what this is all about. Hebrews, as I said at the very beginning, doesn't fit the normal pattern of an epistle. We refer to it as an epistle because it has certain characteristics as such, but it doesn't have the standard greeting uh, from the author, the salutation to a particular group of people at a particular location, grace and peace to you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's, there's nothing like that 
in um, in the, the beginning of Hebrews, and there's not a typical closing either. So there's elements of it that are that are distinctly different. We don't know who wrote it. We're not sure when it was written. We can patch together certain things and come up with a fairly good guess. It's written before the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. It's written after 60. It's written before the revolt of the Jews begins, which is in 66. So we can conclude that it's probably sometime around 63 or 64 A.D., Some people have thought that it was written by the Apostle Paul, but we've looked at the fact that there's about seven or eight different people that are suggested as possible authors, and no one really knows who wrote it, and they don't really know to whom it was written, although we have a number of clues, and it's most likely written to a group of Jews, probably uh, Levites or priests, who trusted Christ as their Savior, going through some sort of... Uh, persecution or rejection because of their stand for Christianity in Israel, and they have reached a state where they're sort of stagnant in their Christian life, if not regressing, and beginning to waver, and some perhaps have already wanted to go back into Judaism, and others are thinking about it, wondering if this Jesus really was their Messiah. So this is a a book, an epistle that is probably based on a message. It was probably based on an oral message that was then taken and uh, worked up into a written letter. I think James is much the same way. First John may be the same way as well, that this was a message that had been uh, verbally given because it has some of those characteristics, and then it was uh, written down. It's primarily a message of exhortation. By exhortation, I don't mean it's preaching. It is a challenge. That's what an exhortation is, to personally challenge people to a certain course of action. But it is not an emotional challenge. It is a content-oriented challenge. Now, that's something that fewer and fewer people in our age understand today because in a postmodern world, there is less and less an emphasis on the content and more and more an emphasis on the story. In fact, I'm going to have... A, a email that I'm going to read to you Sunday morning because as we've been talking about worship, I've touched on this whole aspect about uh, postmodernism and worldview and how that is important. And I received an email from a friend of mine who is an active duty uh, major in the Army going through. He's gone through Command and General Staff School up at Fort Leavenworth and now he's going through a higher school there dealing with the uh, strategy, overall strategy in the military and he get, sent me an email the other day detailing uh, in, in a general way how much postmodernism has influenced military strategy and military thinking today. And he just got through going through a course where there, all the major figures, Derrida, Rorty, Foucault, are all mentioned and talked about in these courses. So when we think about postmodernism, don't just think of this as something that somehow inhabits the halls of academia. It, it's filtered down to the everyday person. And so uh, the world today doesn't focus on content. It focuses on form. It focuses on the story. You watch commercials. It's more important about how the commercial impacts you and how it makes you feel, and how it stimulates you through all the colors and movement and everything else, then actual meaning and content. Of course, that's not anything new. That's been going on for a while. But that just fits within our whole uh, postmodern 
uh, mentality. We're not motivated by content anymore. We're motivated by images. We're motivated by story. We're motivated by emotion. But this is not an emotional letter. This is a content-driven letter because the, uh, the God of the Bible motivates people through content, through knowledge, through information. And you see this, uh, you go back to First Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles were written to challenge and motivate the Jews who were returning from the exile because they, they came back all fired up to rebuild the temple and to rebuild Jerusalem. And then after a couple of years, they just sort of ran out of gas and got discouraged. And so the First Chronicles was written to challenge them and to encourage them and to motivate them. It's God's motivational speech in the Old Testament. It starts off with nine chapters of genealogy. Modern man says, that'll never motivate anybody. See, what I've always said, it's not that the Word of God's irrelevant to you, it's that you're irrelevant to God. We don't think like God thinks. It's content. It's history. It's what's happened historically that is what is to challenge us and motivate us to greater obedience in God's Word because He's taking us someplace in history. There is a future destiny. Jesus Christ is coming back to planet earth. Jesus Christ is going to come back and establish his kingdom and he needs a cadre of, of, of people, leaders who are going to rule and reign with him and that's the church and he's in the process of training us and this time period we're on earth whether it's three score or three score and ten or four score or whatever it is that is our training time and we're to take in the word of God and use that and not give up, not grow weary and that's a major theme all throughout the book of Hebrews. And it's built off of the implication of the present session of Jesus Christ as he is seated at the right hand of the Father and on the outworking of the sanctification of the saints in light of their future service in the kingdom. And I said that when we started off. That's the theme of Hebrews. It's the implication of the Savior's session on the current sanctification of the saints and their future service in the kingdom. In other words, it's all about living today in light of eternity. That just boils it all down, makes it real simple. But everything in this book hinges on what challenges us to live today, to have that eternal scope, not just living for tomorrow or next week or next month or next decade, but that we're living today in light of eternity. Hebrews is structured around five major sections. We've gone through four of them. We're getting on to the fifth one. Each one of those contains a doctrinal exposition or a didactic section from the Greek word didaskalos, meaning to teach. It's an instruction based on this, uh, based on Old Testament uh, passages. In fact, there are uh, 35 quotations from the Old Testament in Hebrews and over 53 allusions to Old Testament passages, which combines to make a total of over 88 Old Testament references. So it's clear that the writer of Hebrews is taking his readers back to all of these different Old Testament passages and then weaving those doctrines together to show them how that affects the church age. Now, remember, the church wasn't revealed in the Old Testament. But he's taking all of these passages because they focus on the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And now that the person and work of Jesus Christ, that period of the first incarnation is over with, 
And because of who he is now at the right hand of the Father, there's a new dispensation oriented to a new purpose based on a new foundation. So what we're going to see when we get into this next section, chapter 7, 8, 9, and 10, is a comparison to show the superiority of Christ in his person over the uh, Old Testament priest, so, uh, Christ in his, in his priesthood over the uh, Levitical priesthood, Christ in his work, his priestly work on the cross as superior to the Old Testament sacrifices that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. And then we're going to see the superiority of Christ's completed work on the cross and the implications that that has for believers living in this church age. And it's four, four chapters, 7, 8, 9, and 10, that are built on an understanding of the Old Testament. So as we go through these next four chapters, we will go back to major sections of Exodus to understand the uh, tabernacle and the tabernacle worship. And that will be mostly the second half of Exodus where you have all the instructions given by God on the priesthood, the clothing of the priesthood, the tabernacle, and all all the construction. It's basically God gives a verbal blueprint for all of this and verbal patterns for all of the uh, clothing and everything for the priests. We want, you don't, and that's not the kind of passages that you go through verse by verse and clause by clause. Not unless you want to have three people left in the congregation and half of them asleep. So, but it's important to understand this in sort of an overview capacity because Christ is taught and revealed in the tabernacle, in the furniture, in the structure. And that is foundational to understand that structure when we get into chapter 8 and then into chapter 9. Uh, that's what all that's built on. Then we deal with the covenant, which is the Mosaic covenant. That's chapter uh, 8 as uh, most of chapter 8 dealing with the issue that we're under a new covenant that replaces the older covenant because Christ has come, the old covenant is rendered obsolete. So we have this major shift that takes place because the law changes or because the priesthood changes, the law changes. And the Mosaic law is rendered null and void and obsolete because Jesus Christ has come. Then the implications for the Christian because of that are brought out because Christ has now ascended and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So we saw those, all of those major doctrines foreshadowed in those early chapters of Hebrews. So in terms of the structure, we looked at the first section, which was 1-1 down through 2-4. That's really comprised of three elements. The first is the first four verses, which is the prelude. The prelude sets up the focal point, which is on Jesus Christ, that God has now spoken in this age by the, the last days, which refers to the last days of the of the church, which is the whole church age. Now, remember this, because every now and then I have somebody email something to me or I read something, say, we've got to look at what's going on in the world today. Look at all this corruption and perversion. We've got to be living in the last days. Biblically speaking, there are two periods of last days. We went over this back in those first four verses. Biblically speaking, there's two periods of last days. There's last days for Israel and last days for the church. The last days for Israel are the tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble, uh, Daniel's 70th week. That is the last days for Israel, the tribulation. 
Then there's the last days for the church. And as a writer of Hebrews says in verse 2, in these last days, he considers himself in those last days. The whole church age is considered the period of the last days, that there are trends and cycles of uh, behavior, of, 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 uh, of spiritual growth and then spiritual regression all the way through through the church age. And so just because we see a lot of uh, perversion going on around, around us today, uh, I often ask the question, how does that differ from the perversion and the cannibalism of the Aztecs in Mexico? Of course, you didn't hear about that in school because that was not politically correct. What, how does that differ from the degeneracy in Rome by the 3rd and 4th centuries leading up to, to that collapse? How does that differ from a lot of the perversion that went on in so many other uh, cultures and countries around the world all through the church age period? It's not any worse today. You just get, you just know about it and get to watch it on TV, especially if you're up about two in the morning and you're watching some of those infomercials. You really see how, uh, this country has degenerated. You just watch the evening news. We, we hear about things that we didn't talk about at all 30 years ago. Didn't, didn't mention in mixed or unmixed company. And now it's on the evening news. So we just see how our, how this has happened. But this isn't new in history. We're just more aware of it now than we've ever been, uh, ever been before. So this prelude focuses on the God who has now spoken to us by means of his Son. We see the emphasis on the fact that he appointed Jesus Christ as the heir of all things, which focuses on the future and that, that having in the, in, um, in the, uh, ascension. He's become so much better than the angels. He has, by means of inheritance, um, obtained a more excellent name than they, that is, of the angels. So it sets up the discussion of the next 10 or 12 verses on the superiority of the Son. So from verse 5 down to verse 14, the emphasis is on the superior, the superiority of Jesus Christ. And this is done through the use of a number of Old Testament uh, quotations, a number of these Old Testament quotations that are woven in and out uh, in this section. There's eight Old Testament quotes here from various Psalms and from, as well as from Isaiah in order to demonstrate the superiority of Jesus Christ over the angels and therefore uh, he is uh, worthy to be obeyed and we should not fall away from that. And then there's a warning that comes in uh, the practical exhortation and warnings combined in chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. It's a very short warning, and again, it emphasizes hearing and word. Remember, a major thing, thing to watch for as we go through Hebrews is that it was set up in those first four verses that God has now spoken. And the implication is because God has spoken, you have to respond. You have to obey. And we see this theme all the way through this section. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, the things we've heard. Uh, we must give more earnest heed to the things we've heard. For if the word spoken in the Old Testament brought such discipline on the Jews, how much more discipline uh, is there in store for us if we neglect this salvation? And it's not just salvation in terms of neglecting or not being uh, appreciative or responsive to what happened in the past when we were justified. 
but it's a focus on the future, that salvation in its completion at phase three. When we come to the next section, section two from two five to four thirteen. And in two five thirteen the focus is on Jesus in the incarnation that he is made lower than the angels. And the focus here is that God sent his eternal son to qualify for the Davidic sonship. He qualifies for the inheritance. In his deity, he was already over the angels. But in his humanity, because he passes all the tests, he is promoted over the angels as a man because he has uh, qualified himself and he has been made perfect or complete, actually, by means of his suffering. So he sets the course. He is the uh, pioneer of our faith, the captain of our salvation is the term that's used in the New King James in chapter 2, uh, verse, verses, verse 10. And then this whole section from 2.10 down through 2.18 builds as it focuses on the fact that his qualification in his humanity in the incarnation qualifies him to be our high priest. Now that's a key thread that he's going to pick up in chapter 7 is that Christ is qualified to be our high priest. And in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, Therefore, all things in all things he had to be made like his brethren, that means true humanity, that he might be, that is, in order that he might become, which he did by passing the test, a merciful and faithful high priest in all things pertaining to God, pertaining to, God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For in that he has he himself has suffered being tested, he is able to aid those who are tested. That's part of his role as the high priest. And then the next section in the first part of chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, focuses on his faithfulness in the incarnation, and that because he's faithful in the incarnation, he's faithful now as he is over his house today. And then we have our exhortation and warning, and that comes up, in 3, 7, down through 4, 13. And there are several quotations there from the same, uh, from the same psalm. Again and again, we have a quote from Psalm 95, 7. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. We find it in, in 3, 7, again in 3, 15, again, uh, down in chapter 4, Verse 7, and the focal point is, is that God still has, just as God had a rest for Israel in the Old Testament, he was taking them to the promised land, and their provision would be made for them, in the same way, by analogy, God has a rest for us, and that is that position we'll have in the millennial kingdom. But if we harden our hearts like they did in the wilderness, then we risk uh, realizing that inheritance and realizing that rest. And we went through that, and that leads up to a conclusion in chapter 4, uh, verses 9 and 10. There, there remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. That's not the faith rest drill. That's talking about a future rest in the millennial kingdom. For he, he who has entered his rest has ceased from his works. That is not works in terms of trying to gain God's approbation, but spiritual application, spiritual growth, spiritual service in phase two. And then we are to be diligent to enter that rest 
lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. This is in uh, Hebrews 4.11. So that brings us to the third section. The third section, we have our, our doctrinal exposition or didactic section from 4.15 to 5.10. 4.15 to 5.10 focuses on Christ's qualifications for the high priesthood, and it's building this discussion to compare his priesthood to that of the Melchizedekian priesthood in the Old Testament. But there's this sudden breaking off that occurs at verse 11 because they've become so uh, sort of hardened, they've become dull of hearing, they've regressed spiritually, and we have one of the most serious warning passages in the New Testament in verses 4 through 8. But there's a practical exhortation there from 5.11 down through 6.20. And the focal point here is that God will not forget, it's in verse 10, God is not unjust to forget your work and labor so that uh, and, and that you have ministered to the saints. And we desire that each of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. That's the focal point. Keep pressing on. Don't give up and that God will fulfill his promise to us in the church age in the same way he fulfilled his promise to Abraham in the Old Testament. And that brings us up to the, the start of our new section, which is in 7.1 down through 10.39. And the doctrinal exposition begins in 7.1 and extends down through 10.18. And this is a deep section to cover. I'm going to try to cover all of this tonight just to give you that sort of bird's eye view of what's taking place here because we will probably be in this section for a number of months. There is a lot here. There are a lot of doctrines that are referenced all in this particular section. Now, the writer returns to his theme of emphasizing the unique high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ in chapter 7, verse 1. He brought us right back to talking about the fact that he's become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek in verse 20. In verse 20, let me remind you, he talks about Jesus, not Jesus Christ or Christ. The emphasis in Jesus is on the humanity of our Lord, not on his Deity, it's in his humanity that he becomes our high priest. The second thing that I mentioned last time is that he has become a high priest forever. This is eternal. He's going to pick up on that theme of the eternality of this high priest. This is why it's superior to the Levitical high priest. Levitical priest died, but the Melchizedekian priest didn't die. Melchizedek, the death of Melchizedek isn't recorded. Now, there's some tricky things going on in chapter chapter 7, that um, we have to learn to think a little differently and we'll understand what the writer is saying. The people always get confused about Melchizedek. In fact, last week I got an email from somebody and said, I've got to talk to a Mormon tomorrow. What's this thing about the priesthood of Melchizedek among the Mormons? And the Mormons believe that all of their church workers basically enter into one of two, the two orders of priesthood. They just borrow that from the Old Testament. They, you're either a priest according to the Aaronic priesthood or the Melchizedekian priesthood, but it has nothing to do with the Bible. It's just their gobbledygook. So, you know, that's, that you just go and borrow, borrow a lot of terms from the Bible and slap it on your heresy and 
you can create a new religion. I used to have a professor at seminary that said, you men are trained so well that you can do great things for God or great things for the devil because you know so much. And he was right. So there's just, a, you know, knowledge can lead you in two different directions. Okay, so at the end of chapter 6, the writer sets us up for the transition to go back to the discussion about Christ's superior priesthood. And this is the focal point we're looking at here just on these, these sections, and that's all I have in terms of an overhead. So the writer returns to this theme, and the principle that we find here in the first section, the first paragraph runs from one, I mean seven one to seven ten, and the principle is laid out in verse seven. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. What he's doing in this first, these first ten verses, is showing that from the historical incident between Abraham and Melchizedek, that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham because the Levites come from Abraham because they are his descendants. If Melchizedek is superior to Abraham, then Melchizedek is superior to any of, of Abraham's descendants. And that's, that's his whole argument, is that the, the uh, priesthood of Melchizedek is superior, and it's not based on human lineage. It is not based on any kind of a human factor. It's not based on ethnicity. It's not based on tribal affiliation. It's not based on who your ancestors are. The Melchizedekian priesthood is unique in that way. And he's basing this on an idiom. I pointed this out a minute ago. And in verse 3, we have the statement that Melchizedek was without father, without mother, without genealogy. And so you always have people come along and go, well, was he an angel? Well, that was a pre-incarnate Christ. See, he didn't have a father or a mother. Well, that's because you're interpreting a Hebrew idiom, a Middle Eastern way of speaking, in a Western mindset. And so you think it says something it doesn't say. What it's talking about is that is that these terms are used to refer to an orphan or to refer to a waif or to refer to somebody who has no standing in society because his parents didn't do anything. Uh, it doesn't, they're not terms that said that, well, there was no literal father, no literal mother. He just kind of popped out of, out of nowhere or he was an angel. It's not what it's saying. It's there's no record of who his father was. There's no record in the scripture of who his mother was. There's no record of his death. Because the scripture is, is setting Melchizedek up to be used as a, uh, as a type of this order of priesthood in order to make this point later on. So God doesn't tell us who he was. Now, when we studied Melchizedek and back in Genesis chapter 17, and I took you through that, you'll remember that I said that, that the Jews have a tradition, and what's interesting about it is that it is a unanimous Tradition, all the rabbis and all the Jewish writings all agree that Melchizedek was Shem, the son of uh, Noah. Now, nobody knows that for sure. He may be biblically, there's no record of who he was. I think it makes a lot of sense that he may have been Shem. But, see, we have to stick with what the text says. The text doesn't tell us who his mother or father was because it's not an inherited priesthood. That's the point. 
It's not an inherited priesthood, like the Levitical priesthood, which is a, an inherited priesthood. And also, we're never told about Melchizedek dying. Now, he was human, so he died. We're not told about it. Because it's setting up this, this sense of eternality. There's a, there's a sense of permanence there with the Melchizedek priesthood that's not there with, with the, uh, Aaronic priesthood. Because they die. We read about the deaths of Aaron and, and numerous others down through the, down through the Old Testament. So the emphasis in this first section, these first ten verses of chapter seven is to show that Abraham was subordinate to Melchizedek, and it's demonstrated by the fact that when he comes back from defeating the uh, the alliance of the four kings under Keterleomer, that Abraham pays tithes. That means he gives ten percent of the spoil to Melchizedek. And of course, this is one of those passages where everybody wants to go to try to document tithing in the New Testament. And what's interesting is that there are six or seven uses of the word tithe in these ten, ver- ten verses, which means that is a major element, is what Abraham did. He gave 10% to Melchizedek, and then Melchizedek blessed him. Now, there's another one of my little uh, pet peeves, is that everybody today keeps talking about um, how... Uh, Oh, you bless me by giving me money, or uh, pastors say in some churches, so-and-so come forward and he blessed me with giving me this, and blessing is a word that's being overused. Abraham gave money to Melchizedek, but Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Think about that. What we're going to see is that he, it is a, he prayed for Abraham and commended Abraham to God. That's what that means in this context. So we're going to have to look at what blessing means. We're going to have to look at the doctrine of tithing, and we're going to have to go back and review uh, Genesis chapter 17 as we come to understand the the argument of, of the writer of Hebrews in these 10 verses. What he's doing is he's simply establishing the fact that Abraham had to be a subordinate to Melchizedek in order for this to happen. Therefore, anybody who descends from Abraham is inferior to Melchizedek in terms of priesthood. Levites are inferior to the Melchizedekian priesthood. So, he then draws a conclusion in verse 11. If perfection, that is, if completion were possible by the Levitical priesthood, then there wouldn't have been a place for another order of priests. But yet, in Psalm 110, verse 4, which is quoted twice in this section... It's quoted in verse 17 and again in verse 21, and it's alluded to in chapter 8, verse 1. So there's three references to Psalm 110.4, that the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, that was written by David. So if there's a need for an order for a Melchizedekian priesthood at David's time, approximately 1000 BC, then that means that the Levitical priesthood that was established in 1400 BC at Mount Sinai, 1440, is inferior to the Melchizedekian priesthood. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a need to keep it established and to indicate that it was going to be an eternal priesthood, which is indicated by the fact that you, the statement, you are a priest forever, according to uh, the order of Melchizedek. So that next section, 
from verse 11 down through verse 19 focuses on the royal priesthood of Christ based on uh, the Melchizedekian royal priesthood and then connecting that to Psalm the, the, to the prophecy in Psalm 110 verse 4. Then in the next section from chapter from uh, excuse me from verse 20 down through verse 28 there is an emphasis there again on the fact that this new priesthood of Jesus Christ was made the old priesthood was not made uh, without an oath for I mean the old priesthood was made without an oath they became priests without an oath but he that is Jesus Christ was made priest with an oath that is with a binding statement verse 21 so we're going to have to look at that and then verse 22 that Jesus has become surety of a better covenant he's become the guarantor and this is a word that's only used this one time in all of the uh, New Testament it translates the word inguas and it emphasizes a, a unique dimension to this and it emphasizes the fact that he is more of a mediator, and it not only looks back to what he established at the cross and establishing the new covenant, but also it's a guarantee that God will eventually fulfill his promise and bring forgiveness to those who are saved. So it is a word that looks in two different directions, and it is a, a word that is uniquely applied to the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of this priesthood and what he does on the cross, verse 25 says, therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. In other words, there's nothing left out. He has a, it's a sufficient salvation that covers any and every problem that mankind uh, can have. And again, it uses that same root word, sozo, for salvation. But he is also able to save to the uttermost which has, again, a future orientation in terms of phase three and the completion of the entire uh, saving plan of God. And then there's another contrast brought out in verse 28, that the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been made perfect or complete forever. And so it focuses on his finished work and will eventually lead the writer to talk about his ascension and being seated at the right hand of the Father. Then we come to Hebrews chapter 8. And Hebrews chapter 8 develops the concept that a new high priesthood means a new covenant. A new priesthood means a new covenant. And this was indicated uh, and alluded to back in verse 12 of chapter 7, where we read, for the priesthood being changed of necessity, there's also a change of the law. Now he's going to develop that idea and what that means in chapter 8. And he says, this is the main point or the chief point of the things we are saying. So he summarizes what he just said in chapter 7. And he says, we have such a high priest who has seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. And he begins to work out the implications of that session of Jesus Christ. That if he were on the earth, he couldn't do what he's doing in heaven, but because he's seated at the right hand of the Father, he can do unique things in relationship to the church. And so verse 6 concludes, but now he's obtained a more excellent ministry than the Levitical priesthood. 
And then we come to chapter, excuse me, to verse 7. Verse 7 to 13, where he argues for a new covenant. Now, this is an interesting passage, just because it's written so much from a Jewish perspective. The writer of Hebrews quotes a, a well-known passage in uh, Jeremiah dealing with the uh, new covenant, Jeremiah uh, 31, 31 to 34. And he quotes the entire section, all four verses, quotes them verbatim. He starts off by saying, If the first covenant had been faultless, then there would have been no reason to have a second place. And then he says, he quotes it, and he says uh, from Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And then he goes on, and he keeps quoting the passage. But when he gets all said and done, now this is, you've heard me do this. I'll read three verses, and I'll say, okay, now the point of that is, and I just make one bullet, and then we move on. I'm not dealing with every detail in those verses. And he doesn't. He quotes all four verses because they are the foundation for the new covenant in the church uh, for, for, uh, for Israel in the millennial kingdom. And he concludes, and this is the only point he makes, it's typical rabbinical midrash where they'll quote a lengthy passage and just make one point. In verse 13 he says, In that it says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. You see, he quotes four verses, and he says, okay, I want to point out one thing. In that first clause, he says, I'm going to make a new covenant. The fact that he used the word new means that God always intended that the Mosaic covenant would not be eternal. It would be replaced. It was a temporary covenant. And that's the point. That's really the word that we should use when we talk about the Mosaic covenant, not the word conditional or unconditional, but the word temporary because there were certain conditions in all of the so-called unconditional covenants. For example, under Abraham, and the Jews could not really enjoy the blessings of the land unless they were obedient. And you're not going to see them really enjoy the blessings of the land until they are obedient in the millennial generation. So there are conditions attached, not to its ultimate application, but to its experiential application. But it's a permanent covenant. That means it's never going to stop. Whereas the Mosaic covenant was temporary, it was never intended to last uh, for very long. So that's chapter 8. Then we get into chapter 9, where the writer is going to describe how the priestly function under the Aaronic priesthood in the tabernacle, he never talks about the temple. That's interesting. He always goes back to the tabernacle. And he shows how the uh, operation of the high priest in the tabernacle foreshadows the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he talks about each of the different elements in the tabernacle, that you have the, the tent, literally it's the skene in the Greek, which is uh, a, a Greek word which means a dwelling place, skene, S-K-E-N-E. You have a cognate for it even in Russian. They bar- borrowed it from the Greeks. Uh, skene. Skene didn't come from the Greeks, though, originally. Skene has three consonants, S-K-N. Those are the three consonants in the Hebrew word Shekinah. Shekinah means dwelling. It doesn't mean glory. It means the dwelling. Shekinah is a word that's never found in the Hebrew Old Testament. It's only found in rabbinical writings. It was a word they used to develop a circumlocution to describe the presence 
of God in the tabernacle and in the temple in the Old Testament. So that Hebrew word Shekinah means the dwelling. And it came over into Greek as skene. And the word skene describes the tent of meeting where God dwelt inside the tabernacle. And there were two compartments in the tent of meeting, and which we call the, the holy place. There was the outer room, which is the holy place, and then the inner room, which we call the holy of holies, or sometimes it's translated the most holy place. The outer uh, part of the of the tent of meeting had three uh, three pieces of furniture according to Exodus, the lampstand, the table uh, of showbread. And it's translated the table and the showbread, but it's a hendiatus and it's the table of showbread. And it also had a altar of incense that was right up against the veil. But the altar of incense pictured prayer that was going to God who dwelt among the cherubim. So the writer of Hebrews connects, he doesn't use, we'll have to get into the technical exegesis because it looks like he's placing it into that inner compartment, but he really isn't. He is, he is identifying it with the inner compartment because that's what the, the altar of incense, the intercessory prayers were connected to is the presence of God, the prayers going to God who dwelt, uh, between the cherubs on the Ark of the Covenant. And then you go inside that second veil, to the uh, mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant and the cherubim of glory, uh, verse 5. Verse 6 and following talks about the limitations of the earthly service of the, of the Levites and that the Holy Spirit, in verse 8, is showing that all of this has a greater symbolic meaning. Verse 9, it was a symbol for the present time and to perform the service that uh, uh, completes the work of salvation. That's the idea that is brought about in those, uh, first, or those next verses from verse 6 uh, down through verse 10. But then we have a reference to the heavenly sanctuary in verse 11, that Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with a greater and more perfect, or that should be more complete tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. So he's ta- the, the verbiage that we see in this chapter shows that the earthly temple and tabernacle is patterned after a heavenly courtroom where we have the presence of God in heaven. And it talks about how he enters into the holy place with the, because the blood of bulls and goats uh, couldn't take away sin. But we have in verse, ter- uh, verse 12, now with the blood of goats and calves, but with not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, uh, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifies for the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience? In other words, the Old Testament sacrifices were merely pictures. They were shadows. They simply pointed to what Jesus Christ was going to do. For if there was a testament, verse 16, the mediator has to die in order to secure the covenant. So this word covenant doesn't get introduced until chapter 8, but from chapter 8 on, it's used over 20 times in these chapters, showing us that that is a major uh, major theme in this particular 
uh, section. Where there is a testament or a covenant, there must also be the death of the testator, for a testament is in force after men are dead. So it's establishing the fact that this eternal covenant had to be established by death, and then it's going to talk about the blood of Christ and why that is significant. So we're going to have to take time to study that doctrine of the blood of Christ. And it builds on this in uh, from verse 23 on. And all of this is undergirded by the doctrine of atonement, the doctrine of the Day of Atonement, and understanding those Old Testament images of what happened at that time when the high priest goes into the, uh, goes into the Holy of Holies and would put the blood onto the mercy seat as an act that would propitiate the Father. And this word atonement is a word that is only used in the Old Testament. There's no Greek word for atonement, and the word atonement is never used in the New Testament. And that is for a number of different reasons, but seems, there's been a lot of debate over the idea of atonement in Scripture, and the concept that I was brought up on, and that you always heard too, is that atonement from the uh, Hebrew word kafar had the idea of covering, covering sin. What's interesting is it may have that connotation in a few places, but recent studies over the last 20 years indicate that it probably has as closer to the meaning of purification which really fits with the Septuagint. In a vast majority of places, the Septuagint translates kafar with the Greek word katharizo, meaning to be cleansed uh, when we confess our sins. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and katharizo, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So atonement, really, that word kafar heads the idea of cleansing us or purifying us from sin, and that's what that picture, picture is that we have on the Day of Atonement. So we have to pull all of those things together. Now in verse 28, chapter 9, verse 28, we read, So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for what? For salvation. You don't have it yet. Not the way he's using the word salvation. See, it's a future-oriented concept. Remember, phase one, you're saved from the penalty of sin. You're made spiritually alive when you were spiritually dead. Phase two, we're saved from the uh, power of sin in sanctification. Phase three, we're saved from the presence of sin, the sin nature. That's glorification. That's how salvation is used in the book of Hebrews. It's focusing on that destiny. And then we come to chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, where we see that in the preceding sections, the efficacy of the blood of Jesus has been emphasized, and now the emphasis is on the fact that this is a once-for-all sacrifice. It's not to be repeated. In the Old Testament, those sacrifices had to be repeated. Day in, day out, the ritual went on again and again and again. One priest died, another priest took his place. He died, another priest took his place. He died, another priest took his place. There's repetition and there's, uh, but it's all inadequate. It goes on and on and on. It was simply a shadow of what Jesus would do and Jesus on the cross provides the real substance. So we come back to the fact that 
in verse 1, for the law having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of these things can never with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, there's that repetition idea, make those who approach perfect or complete. They can't do it. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins, verse 4. But Jesus came into the world in order to provide the perfect sacrifice. That's the focus of verses 5 through 7. And verses 5 through 7 are a quote from Psalm 40, uh, verse 6 and following. A body you have prepared for me, Jesus says, uh, in burnt offerings and sacrifices for sins you had no pleasure. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. Nobody in the Old Testament could really say that. David was still a sinner. He couldn't perfectly do the will of God. Only Jesus in all of human history could truly say perfectly, Lord, I've come to do your will. I've come to fulfill uh, the plan of salvation. And so this psalm is put into the mouth of Jesus, into his thinking at the moment of the incarnation. And so that's developed. And then we look down to verse 10. It says, By that we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And that's talking about our positional sanctification. Then we come to the last section in the didactic part, which is verses 11 through 18, which connects the work of Christ to our sanctification, which is the, which is uh, uh, related to his intercessory ministry and his current priesthood. Notice verse 11. He says, Every priest, this is the Levitical priestly ministry, every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But this man, in his humanity, he paid for our sins. This man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of the Father. See, that goes back to Psalm 110. He sits down at the right hand of the Father, waiting for the Father to make his enemies his footstool, Psalm 110.1. And so that's alluded to there. And for by one offering, he has what? Completed forever those who are, what? Being sanctified. That's phase two. So the connection is made with what Christ did on the cross, his high priestly work, the completed once-for-all salvation on the cross is connected there to our uh, spiritual spiritual life and spiritual growth. And out of that, he's going to bring an exhortation, a challenge, and then a warning. And this is one of the toughest warning passages to deal with. The exhortation is covers the whole section from 10.19 down to 39, and the warning is found in 10:26 to 39 and we're going to have to spend uh, a considerable amount of time working our way through that particular warning passage and then that will bring us up uh finish up the fourth section and bring us up to the fifth section the last section that goes from 11:1 uh to 13:25 uh, that's our I don't know I've lost my powerpoint completely That'll take us up to the last, the last section, the conclusion of the book, where we have a didactic section followed by two exhortations. Okay, next time we'll come back, we'll start getting into the details of the Melchizedekian priesthood and what is going on there. We have to look at, at Melchizedek. Is he an angel? Is he Jesus? Uh, is he pre-incarnate Christ? Who is he? What's all this about without father and without mother? Not only that, 
how do how does tithing fit in? But then what's this whole thing about Levi paying tithes through Abraham? That is a foundation for a view called uh, traditionism. How that whole this whole debate over the transmission of the soul? When does a person become a living person at conception, at birth? What does the Bible teach? It's all tied up in this debate between that's gone on in the church for ages on traditionism versus uh, creationism. And that's not talking about Genesis 1-1 creation. So there's a lot of stuff embedded in these first ten verses that we'll have to touch on in the next couple of weeks. Let's bow our heads in closing prayer. Father, we thank you for your word, for the challenge we have in your word to press on, to look forward, to live today in light of eternity. We pray that you would challenge us with these things as we study them, that we may gain a greater appreciation for how the Old Testament prepares us to see who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross and how the New Testament uh, explains that and shows us what that means for our future. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.